Join me, if you would, in Colossians chapter number 2. We'll be working through a large section of Scripture this morning because the Apostle Paul's argument and um, uh, his uh, warnings are built in that way. So as a result, we'll read a few verses that will introduce us to the text, and then we'll continue to work our way through it as we go through the message this morning. Colossians chapter number 2, we'll begin reading in verse number 6, and we'll read to verse number 7, have a word of prayer, and then work our way through the text. Colossians chapter number 2. And verse number six, the word of God says, as ye therefore, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught abounding therein with thanksgiving. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God and we thank you for the uh, many many instances, the manifold grace that we've been able to see in some very tangible areas this semester. Thank you, Lord, that here we are toward the end of uh, middle or end of October, and we're still here. Thank you, Lord, for opening the door for West Coast Baptist College to open our doors and uh, continue training and fulfilling our mission and equipping others to fulfill their mission. Father, we're grateful for that. We recognize that you had to work in order for that to happen, and we want to thank you. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, give students stamina as we come into another semester now. We've already had a, a, a term. We've already uh, taken some classes. Now we're starting all over again. And Lord, uh, I pray that you would uh, help us to have the stamina and the diligence. And Lord, may we not lose the joy in the moment. I pray that you'd help all of us to uh, go throughout today and be filled with the Spirit. And Lord, may this next term be a term where your spirit can move in our midst. We pray, Lord, for revival. We think of the missions conference and the many things. Lord, what you could do would absolutely be on anything we can imagine. So, Father, we pray that you would fulfill what you desire to do in our midst, in our community, in this church, in this college. And, Lord, we promise you all the glory. Father, I pray for your enabling today. I pray that you would help me and guide me as uh, we open up the word of God. And I pray that you would allow this message and the message, Lord, from Colossians chapter 2 to impact our lives in the way that you intend. And, Father, we'll thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. The Apostle Paul, as many of you know, was an early convert to Christianity after Christ rose from the dead. He goes from a persecutor of the church to planters of churches. The Apostle Paul had a very heralded ministry. We're all familiar with his uh, missions journeys, with the places that he went, with the incredible sacrifice that we see in his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. By the time we get to the book of Colossians, this letter to the church there at Colossae, we find Paul in prison. This is one of the prison epistles. He's writing this from his incarceration cell. He is locked up and uh, jailed by the Roman government, and he's writing to a church that he has likely never been to. He says frequently through this text that he wishes he could have met them, that he wishes he would have known them. This is not a church that is on his missionary journey. This is not a church that we know that Paul himself started. In fact, it's quite likely that this is a church like his letter to Rome, where he did later end up, of course, visiting and dying. But when he wrote it, he had not yet been there. And when he writes this letter to the church at Colossae, he had not been here and didn't know most of the people here as well. He begins the letter with an introduction, as he always does. He then goes through this incredibly sublime passage in chapter number one of exalting Christ and lifting Christ up, one of the, the, the most incredible passages for the deity of Christ and the majesty of Christ that you'll find in the entire New Testament is in Colossians chapter number one. Then he gives a little bit of an overview of his ministry at the end of that chapter, and now we get in chapter number two where he's focused in on an heir that threatens to destroy the church of Colossae and the Christians who are there. And as he focuses in on that air, we join him in the text in Colossians 2 and verse number 6, and he, 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 he gives this admonition to the church at Colossae that since you have received Christ, so walk ye in him. You're familiar with that term walk in the New Testament having to do with lifestyle, having to do with your behavior. And what the Apostle Paul is clearly saying here is now that you've received Christ, we would say perhaps now that you are saved, so walk in a manner consistent with your salvation. So live out that belief, live out that faith. 
Uh, your belief should determine your behavior. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Walk in Christ. You've received Christ. Your salvation is in Christ. Now your walk should be in Christ as well. In verse number 7, he gives us five verbs that describe that walk, that describe that journey. And I think it's a journey you and I know personally and intimately. Verse number 7 says, rooted. That's where it starts, isn't it? Who are we rooted in? Well, that's in Christ. The Christian journey is foundationally you and I being rooted in Christ. That's our base. That's our foundation. And the Apostle Paul says, you, you have been rooted in Christ. Secondly, he says, you have been built up in Christ. Isn't it amazing how life goes by and you look back at a couple years ago and how you've changed and what God has done? This is a little bit less uh, obvious to us as old people, like 37 as, as I am, once you get ancient like that. Not every year makes as big of a difference, but I mean, good night. Can you remember four years ago? You were a mere high schooler, right? <laughs> Can you imagine the way, do you remember how you used to look at college students four years ago? Like the big grown-up adults that are all mature and stuff? And now we know it's just us. We're just a couple years older, right? But it makes a big difference, doesn't it? Over the years, we change, and uh, uh, things about us change and mature, and, and even to a little extent for the last couple years of your life, perhaps more than my life, still growing in, in even some physical areas. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, that's a picture of the Christian life. You're rooted in Christ, but you're also, you've been built up. This is a process. This is a growth. You have like a tree that has been planted. This tree, when it was planted, which is a lot smaller, now it's this beautiful pine tree. And like that, your Christian life, you've been built up. Verse number seven, you're rooted. You're uh, built up. Next, he says, you've been established in your faith. That security, that that, that maturing, that uh, strengthening that happens over time. He says, as ye have been taught, this is a part of Christian maturity. You are here in Bible college, and, and both Bible and college are important in that. And there's an element of, of learning about Christ and learning about the uh, Bible and about the gospel. And Paul says, hey, this happened to you. You were rooted. You were built up. Uh, you were established. Uh, you were taught, by the way, the first four verbs in this verse are passive verbs. These are all things that have happened to us, but the last verb is an active verb. The last verb is something Paul wanted them to do, and I think would want us to do as well. Verse number seven, he says, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Oh, what a great thing. Overflowing, excessive amounts uh, abounding, ex, uh, excelling in thanksgiving. How are we doing on that this morning? This is describing a walk in Christ. Abounding in thanksgiving. I love next month for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is I'm reminded to be grateful over and over and over again. And I'll be honest with you, I need that reminder because I'm often not real grateful. I often get a little bit frustrated that uh, this year it's easy to see the things that frustrate us, right? I got to wear a face mask or a face shield. Uh, I was teaching Greek this morning. I was hyperventilating, trying to pull the mask out. Sometimes you've seen a teacher do that or you've done it. How many of you have run up the steps in Revels wearing a mask? Anybody done that? Isn't that a great experience <laughs> to get to the top? And, man, I, it's all the mask. I'm not out of shape. It's all the mask. I promise you got to catch your breath when you get to the top. And yet... What we see here in this passage is the Apostle Paul is describing the Christian life as abounding in thanksgiving. Hey, I hope your roommate would say that you abound in thanksgiving. I hope that those that know you would, would testify that we are grateful, thankful people. It's a part. We're rooted. We're built up. We're established. We're taught. We should be abounding in thanksgiving. The Apostle Paul is saying, hey, Here's why I'm writing to you. I'm in prison. I've got other things to do. I've got other people that I know better, that I, I love more personally, that I could be spending time with and writing letters to. But I'm writing to you, church, because I've heard some things. And I'm very concerned that if you don't, if you don't uh, heed to some truth, you may not exist in a couple of years. This is critical. There's a heresy. There's multiple heresies. I'm going to give you some warnings. So he says, I want you to walk in Christ. And then for the next part of this chapter, there are three key imperatives or three key warnings that the Apostle Paul gives 
to this church that are important for them, and I think they're important for you. I know they're important for me as I study this passage. You see the first one here in verse number 9. Uh, Pastor Chapel quoted this passage on Sunday. I wouldn't expect you to remember, but I did because it was fresh on my mind. He says, beware lest any man spoil you. As Pastor said, on Sunday, the meaning of this word, the sense of it, to be spoiled. It's the idea of being taken captive. Most of us know the biblical term spoil. It doesn't mean like the milk that you left out of the refrigerator and it's spoiled. The idea of spoil is what a conqueror would do after vanquishing their opponent. Spoil is that which somebody would take, the loot, the bounty, the, the, uh, what they would steal from a people after they had conquered them, after they had taken control of them, they would gather spoil. It's used all throughout the Old Testament, right? So we're familiar with what spoil is, what the Apostle Paul is saying. Make sure you don't become someone's spoil. Make sure you don't become someone's prize. Make sure you don't become someone's trophy. Make sure you don't become someone's captive. You could be the spoil of a false idea. You could become, even he's writing to Christians here, but he says to Christians, you could become captive. You could become bound to false ideas, heresy, and untruth. He says, you, this could happen to you. He says, watch, beware. The word there is blepo. If you've taken Greek, you know that means to see. It means to be aware, to, to look out, to be, to be a little bit nervous about it. Like if you're walking down a street at night and... and Sometimes we got a little, we've got a little dog, we'll take him for a walk sometimes at night, and, and I love going out, and I love street lights, and I love kind of the quiet, and, uh, but, but my kids are getting better, but when they're little, especially the girls, uh, if, if any dog barked or if a twig snapped or something, all of a sudden they're like, like glued to the side of me, right, hanging onto my arm, and they're a little bit nervous about it. They're always watching in the dark corners and in the, the shadows that they couldn't see. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, you ought to be a little bit like that. You ought to be a little bit circumspect. You ought to be a little bit aware of, 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 of false ideas. What is it that could spoil me? And he says here in verse number 8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceits. Of course Paul is not saying all philosophy is bad philosophy. Sometimes Christians will read this and say, See, that's why we don't do philosophy. That's a very ignorant statement. That's a philosophical claim, right? Hey, all food isn't good food, right? There's bad food. Have you ever had bad food? You ever had to eat something bad, threw it up later? I mean, got food poisoning or something? There's bad food. That doesn't mean we stop eating food, right? The fact that there's bad philosophy doesn't mean that we don't do philosophy. It doesn't mean that we stop thinking, the, the, the stop learning. There's, there's untruths, but the answer is right philosophy, right thinking, biblical worldview. But the Apostle Paul says if it's not those things, if it's a false, if it's a vain, if it's a deceitful philosophy, if it's an untrue idea, then it has a tendency and a capacity to, to render you spoiled as something else, bring you under the control of something else. He says beware lest that happens to you. So in this passage we could say he's saying don't let someone spoil you through vain philosophy. He says also here through traditions of men. Don't let someone take you captive to the traditions of men. We're going to see this throughout this passage as we go through, but one of the challenges of reading the epistles of Paul is it's hard to know exactly what he's arguing against. Let me give you an illustration. Have you ever been in the room, somebody took a phone call? Maybe the phone rings, they reach over, they answer their phone, and they say, hey, you're kidding. When did it happen? And you're thinking, what happened? <laughs> Who is it? Have you ever been on that in that situation where you're hearing half of a conversation and you're trying to construct the other part of the narrative and imagine what's going on on the other side of the phone? That's exactly what this epistle of Paul is. We're hearing half of a conversation. We're seeing Paul answer heresies that aren't specifically spelled out. We're seeing the antidote to a disease that's unnamed. So the Apostle Paul is saying here, as he's describing these things, it's something that is very specific to the Colossian church, but it's also applicable to us as well, because we too still have 
false and deceitful philosophies, don't we? And we still have traditions of men that can take us away from the truth, and we still have rudiments of this world. We still have worldly elements that can cause us to become captive to something else. Now, why is it that we should be aware? That's how we might be taken captive. Uh, But why is it that we should be aware of all these things? And this is where we see Paul giving the single antidote, the panacea of all heresy is biblical truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the trouble that the Colossian church had here, the, the answer is Jesus. I had a Greek class earlier today, as I mentioned, I gave the guys a tip. Hey, if I ever ask you a question and you don't know what the answer is, just blurt out because of the ending, <laughs> because you're going to be right most of the time. Well, hey, when somebody ever asks you what the, what the true answer is to this heresy, the answer is probably going to be Jesus Christ, right? A biblical view of Jesus. And Paul goes through and he, he, he gives us that beginning in verse number 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That word Godhead used only here in the entire New Testament. But it's impossible to overstate what Paul is trying to convey here, that Jesus Christ, and there are some early forms of pre-Gnosticism that might have been here in Colossae, and what the Apostle Paul is saying, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus had the entire fullness of deity and of the Godhead bodily, physically, in his body as the incarnate, eternal Son of God. And he goes through in this passage and he explains what that means. Okay, so what does that mean? Yeah, I know that. Theologically, what does that mean? Well, verse number 10, it means that you're complete. Verse number 10, he says, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principalities and powers. You're complete in him. I love this. When you look at that word complete, it's the same word that's used in verse number 9 for fullness. Same word. That complete. The fullness of Christ. You're full in Jesus Christ, just like Jesus was the fullness of God. As completely as Jesus is God, so you are complete in him. It's real obvious in the Greek. It's the same word. He's using it, kind of a play on words. As fully as Jesus is God, so you are full in him. As completely as Jesus is God, so you are complete in him. What do you need beyond that? You are complete. You cannot be more complete than complete. The idea that he comes at over and over and over again is you can't improve on perfection. Hey, you can't round off a circle, right? You can't take a circle and make it more round. You can't take a perfect sphere and make it more smooth. You can't. You can't add anything to Christ. You can't add anything to the gospel. You can't add anything to Christ. You are complete in Christ. You don't need anything. You don't need the approval of the false teachers. You don't need the verification of keeping some human system and uh, man's tradition. You don't need any of that. Why? Because you've got Jesus. You have nothing outside of Jesus, and there's nothing that you need if you have Jesus because you are complete in Christ. And Paul had to tell this church that. Don't miss that you are complete in Christ. Verse number 9, he says you're circumcised in him. Verse number 10, rather. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision not made of hands, the putting off of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is that mark of the covenant. Those who belonged, those who were the in group in the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, that's what this was for the Jewish people. And he says, hey, this isn't a physical thing. This is a spiritual thing. This is done without hands. And in Christ, you belong. And in Christ, you're part of the covenant. And in Christ, you are the chosen And in Christ, you are the elect. And in Christ, you are the ones that God has intended to bring to complete fulfillment to reflect the image of Christ. In Christ, you're complete. In Christ, you're circumcised. Verse 12, in Christ, you're baptized and made alive. Look at verse number 12. Buried with him in baptism, whereas also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. What an incredible passage. In Christ, I've been buried and raised again. In Christ, I have a new life that I couldn't otherwise, otherwise have. In verse number 13, he says, And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all trespasses. Okay, so Jesus is God. I know that, right? 
Jesus is the, the, the fullness of God. The, the full Godhead is in Jesus Christ bodily. What does that mean for me? For you, that means you're complete. For you, that means you're part of the covenant. For you, that means you've been baptized. You've been buried. You've been risen into a newness of life. We say that when we baptize people. Buried with him in baptism. Risen to walk in newness of life. And he says, you hath he quickened. The idea of the quickening is he has made alive. You he has made alive. I was dead in trespasses and sin. I used to tell somebody, if you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll die once. And yet, in one sense, you're already dead. Spiritually, I'm born dead. I'm still born spiritually. I'm born without life in a spiritual sense. And what the Bible says is, in Christ, you are quickened. The same spirit that quickened Jesus will quicken your mortal bodies even, Romans chapter number 8 tells us. So here's what Paul is saying. Hey, in Christ, you have all that you need. In Christ, you are complete. You don't get anything other than Christ in Christianity. What do you get if you become a Christian? You don't get freedom from persecution. You become a Christian, you don't get necessarily an easier life. You're not promised a, a, a perfect marriage. You're not promised a high income. You're not promised an easy life. In fact, there's some persecution that, that Jesus talks about as well. What do you get? You get one thing. You get Jesus. And that's, by the way, that's all you need. Because in Christ, you're chosen. In Christ, you're complete. In Christ, you're part of the covenant. In Christ, you are quickened and you are made alive. And the Apostle Paul is telling these people, you have everything that you need in Christ. What did Christ do for all of this to happen? Oh, Paul says Christ did a lot. Verse number 14, we see this is what Jesus did. Jesus wiped away your debt. Verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us. I don't know if this ever happened to your home, in your home as a kid, but this happens in the England house. Once in a while, Toby or Brandy, that's mom and dad, need some cash. And you know what? Mom and dad never have cash. <laughs> we never have money. We've got, we've got a checking account, credit account, and praise God we don't have debt, but we don't ever have money laying around. So, so if we need to like pay, we've got this lady comes by once in a while, sell tamales at the door. Oh, they're good too. <laughs> or we got different things we need some cash for. We'll sometimes go, but you know what? Our kids have money. Not a lot of money, but like some birthday money and some cash. They've got some money. So sometimes we'll go and we'll take down one of the kids' jars. We'll open them up and we'll take out some money. I'm curious. Am I the only parent that's done that? How many of you had a parent that did this before? Please help me out. Okay, at least half of the audience. Okay, good, good, good. So we'll take that out, but we're afraid we're going to forget that we stole $20 from Anastasia or from Bennett. So you know what we put inside of that? We take a little 3 by 5 card, or we'll tear a piece of an envelope off, or whatever's handy, and we'll write, I owe you $40, and we'll stick it in there, or $20. And then when we put the money back in, next time we get some cash, we'll take that out, and we'll rip it up, and we'll throw it away. That little note, that handwritten note, that's an ordinance. That's... That's a I-O-U. That's like an informal check. But it represents debt. That is exactly what Paul has in mind in this passage. He says, Jesus has blotted out the ordinance against you. You had a debt. You, you owed something big. It wasn't $20. The wages of sin is death. You owed that. And yet, Paul says, Christ blotted that out he wiped away he erased your debt christ did that on the cross verse number 14 he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us that was contrary to us and he took it away nailing it to the cross you knew that you knew how he wiped that out he nailed it to the cross he bore it in his body and he died for you what a savior why would you need anything other than Jesus? That's what he did for you. That's why you're complete. That's why you're chosen. That's why you're part of the covenant. That's because of what Jesus did for you. Verse number 14, he wiped out your debt. Verse number 15, he spoiled powers. Look at verse number 15. And having spoiled 
principalities. Hey, we've already had that word spoiled, huh? What does spoiled mean? To take captive. What does spoiled mean? To gather as loot. What does spoil mean? To collect trophies from. What does spoil mean? It means to rob without any chance that somebody can resist you, to have complete access, to take full control over, to spoil someone. Here's what the Bible says. Beware lest any man spoil you. Christ spoiled the principalities and the powers. Hey, you don't need to be spoiled. God spoiled for you. He said, he spoiled, verse number 15, the principalities and the powers, the, the authorities and the rulers, probably in a spiritual sense here, that were contrary to you. This would be uh, Satan and the demons and, and the spiritual realm that was hostile, that was contrary to you. Christ took them complete captivity. Christ spoiled them in the cross, and he didn't just spoil them. 15 continues and says, and made a show of them openly triumphing over them. The ancients understood this analogy very vividly because quite frequently someone who had spoiled another city would come back into town and they would, in a, a manner that was very humiliating, in a manner that was very degrading, parade in front of the citizens, those who were rulers and important from the other town that was spoiled or the other kingdom that was vanquished. And they would parade them through the street, with, with maybe in chains, or maybe in, in some, some, some way of, of shaming them. And people could look and say, hey, that was our enemy, and they're nothing now. They're, they're in chains now. They're under our control now. And the Bible says that Jesus did that to the principalities, the powers, to the rulers, and the authorities that are hostile to you. He spoiled them. He triumphed over them. And he shamed them. He mocked them. He brought them into complete control. That's the God that you serve. That's the Lord that we have. That's Jesus. He says first in verse, uh, here in verse number 8, Beware lest any man spoil you. It's a warning. It's one of three. It's an imperative verb. That's a command for you to do this. It's your responsibility to be aware to watch out, to make sure no one spoils you. That's your responsibility. It's a command, as is verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you. That's an imperative. Do not let someone judge you. Don't let any man judge you. Not only people judge you who are 20 years older than you, not people, only people that can judge you that are New York Times bestsellers. Not the only people that can judge you have decades in ministry. The only people that can judge you have a PhD after their name. The only people that can judge you are, are nationally renowned spiritual leaders. No, verse number 16 says, let no man therefore judge you. Hold on, what's therefore? Therefore. Well, it's therefore because of who Jesus is. Because you're complete in Christ, because you're chosen in Christ, because you're in the covenant in Christ. You're, 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 you've received Christ, now walk ye in him. Therefore, because Jesus triumphed over them, because Jesus spoiled them, because Jesus blotted out your transgressions, because of all that Jesus did, therefore, don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone condemn you. Don't let any person judge you in these areas, verse number 16, in meat, or in drink, or in respect to a holiday, or of a new moon, or of a Sabbath day. Oh, I'd love to go into each of these. Obviously, we don't have time to unpack every aspect of this passage. But, hey, what Paul is saying is, is there are some, some specific things that people expect you to do, or are trying to manipulate you to do. They're not a part of the gospel. They're not, in fact, some of them are even hostile to the gospel. They're maybe Gnostic or they're, they're heretical in nature, but not all of these are bad things. Some of these were Jewish things. Some of these were secular things. Some of these come from the law in the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, they were to observe Sabbath days and, and, and feasts and, and new moons. And Some of these things are contained in the Old Testament, but guess what? They're not binding to a Christian today. 
will say, hey, if they're in the Bible, they're binding on a Christian, right? No, 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 that's not true. Because the Old Testament, the, the part that contains the law of Moses, guess who fulfilled that law? That's yeah, Jesus, right? Jesus didn't fulfill some of the law. Jesus didn't only fulfill the ceremonial law. Jesus didn't only uh, fulfill the, the civil law and leave the moral law to you. No, Jesus fulfilled the whole law. And as a result, Romans chapter 10 and verse number 4 says, Christ is the end of the law to everyone that believeth. See, he, he, he fulfilled the whole law. So you and I as Christians, we go to the Old Testament and we see all of these laws. And our thought shouldn't be, oh, I've got to do this and 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 this. That's not why they're there for us as Christians. Christ is the end of the law, Romans, uh, Romans chapter 10 and verse number 4. Here's what that does to me as a Christian. I say, thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling the law. Free from the law, oh, blessed condition. Christ did that for you. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yes, it's still wrong to murder people, and yes, it's still wrong to, you know, have other gods before the, the one true God. That's all true. But guess what? That was wrong before the law was given, too. Do you realize Joseph was alive before Moses gave the Ten Commandments? He still knew adultery was wrong. And adultery is still wrong today. But it's not because it's in the law. It's not wrong because it was in the law. It was in the law because it was wrong. And Christ fulfilled the whole law. So nothing in the law, because it's in the law, is binding to a Christian because Jesus fulfilled all of it. And that's what he's saying here. As well as some of the paganism as well as some of the secular, what we would say maybe secular ideas that had worked their way in here, the Apostle Paul is saying all of these things, the, the drink and the eat and the respect of holidays and the new moon, I, I know some of you are saying, oh, we don't do any of that today. But it's not true, is it? We do do some of that today. And, and, and there's a tendency, we can judge each other. I don't want to go down this rabbit trail, but I thought, I thought in preparing for this, we can talk about holidays that we judge each other on based on whether or not we keep them. What happens in about two weeks? <laughs> and I'm not advocating for trick-or-treating. I'm just saying that we have a tendency to judge other people's spirituality based on some things that are quite arbitrary and separate from the gospel, and here's what the Apostle Paul says, don't miss this. By the way, this is an imperative, this is a command. If you fail to do this, you disobey the Bible. The command is don't let someone judge you. That's the command, scripturally. Why? Verse number 17, which are a shadow of the things to come, but Christ is the body. Or, or, but, uh, but the body is Christ. Hey, this is very clear here. The reason why none of those things uh, are binding to a Christian, you shouldn't let anyone judge you in them. No one. Why? Because they're all a shadow. Most of you can't see, but I can clearly see my shadow. It's right here. I can wave. I see my shadow. That shadow is the law. It's a shadow. It's a skia in Greek, but Christ is the summa. Christ is the, what's the English word? It's the body, right? The shadow and the body, the law, and Jesus. Now, that didn't look right, but the picture is Jesus is the body. Jesus is the, what the shadow is from. Jesus is what the shadow is to. This is, Jesus is why the shadow was there. Jesus is the cause of the shadow. Jesus is the cause of the law. It was the schoolmaster to bring us unto whom? Unto Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul says, because of that, don't let someone judge you in these areas. In verse number 18, we get our third warning. Also an imperative, three imperatives. Number one, don't let someone spoil you and take you captive. Number two, don't let someone judge you in respect to meat, holidays, or drink. These things are merely a shadow. Christ is the body. Number three, verse number 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward. To beguile, the idea here is like an umpire would disqualify someone for. To tr this is the idea. Don't be tricked into becoming disqualified. You ever competed in a way, but it didn't quite, you didn't quite qualify? I saw an, an incredible article, I think two or three weeks ago, a Kenyan athlete ran a, a full marathon in under two hours for the first time in history. No one's ever done that before. By seconds, he just got under the two miles. This happened earlier this month. Incredible athlete. 
And I am in all of that because I like to run. And I've run a half marathon before. And guess what? My half marathon took longer than his whole marathon. A lot longer. He ran 26.2 miles in less than two hours. But guess what? He didn't break a world record. Well, I thought nobody had done it before. Yeah, nobody had done it before. I thought he was the first person ever to do it. Yeah, he's the first person to ever do it. So why did he not break the world record? He was wearing the wrong kind of shoes. He had too many people running with him. He needed a chase car. Apparently, that's against the rules. I didn't know. Now, he's not upset about it. He knew that going into it. He wanted to do it. He didn't care if anybody counted it or not. But I'm standing on the side thinking, that's incredible. He ran a whole marathon in under two hours. Nobody's ever done that before. Give the guy some credit. He's old, too. So you see a picture of him. Not, not like old, old, but he's older than me. Everybody older than me is old, right? So he's like 40-something. Good night. <laughs> Running this half marathon, breaking world records. It's incredible. And you know what? He's disqualified. doesn't count. Now, you'll never lose your salvation due to adopting bad theology after you're saved. It's not like you get so many points when you get saved, and then every heresy you believe, you know, you go to the wrong kind of church, you believe the wrong kind of uh, sociology or something, you get points docked. If you get under 80 points, you're not saved anymore. That's not how it works. You know what can happen? You can lose a reward. And the Bible says don't let someone do that to you. Don't let someone beguile you or disqualify you from your reward. Well, how would that happen? Verse number 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in voluntary humility, worshiping of angels, intruding those things which he had not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. Uh, yeah, we don't do a lot of that. What is that talking about? Well, this is probably specific for the Corinthian heresy, but the worshiping of angels, uh, the adoring of, of spiritual entities that are not God. There's some modern parallels to that voluntary humility this is getting a little bit closer this is talking about the word would be asceticism the idea that i can spiritually thrive by punishing my body there are people throughout history christians and non-christians that have done stuff like whip themselves with whips or uh some of the medieval monks would wear uh, a shirt made of hair next to the skin just because if you ever gotten a haircut and got some hair in your shirt it's not comfortable so they'd make a whole shirt out of it and wear it all day just to be really, really uncomfortable. They wouldn't sleep in a soft bed, only hard beds. Has nothing to do with the beds you sleep on in the dorm, I promise, right? This is not asceticism. <laughs> food. They wouldn't eat good food, only bad food. I mean, all of these different rules that they made up. And here's the idea. To be spiritually healthy, I have to punish my body. In fastings, in voluntary humility, in this ascetic lifestyle. And I'll be honest with you, that kind of makes sense sometimes today. It's easy to take that mindset, and it's dangerous. And I'll show you why here later on in this passage. But I'm just going to stop, and I'm going to tell you this is something that I've wrestled with. I've never said this publicly. I've never said this to any, I don't know how many people I've ever said this to. I used to fast every single week when I was in college. One, one day a week, I'd always fast. I tried to get a whole bunch of other people to fast with me. We'd sign stuff. We'd sing. You know what? There's nothing wrong with fasting, and maybe some of us should do it more. But you know what? I'll be honest with you. I felt pretty good about fasting a day a week. I'll be honest. I really did. I felt like I was really accomplishing something. You know what that's called? It's called pride. It's kind of the root of all sin. You realize you can do things that look spiritual for very carnal reasons? That's what was happening in Corinth. There was this idea, this asceticism. Watch, it continues. He says here in verse number 19, not holding the head. This is what happens. You focus on these other things and not the head. That's capitalized as it should be. It's referring to Christ, from which all the body, uh, the joints and the bands of nourishment, minister, knit together and increase with the increase of God. This is instead of that, instead of reliance on Christ, instead of being that body where to be uh there was this asceticism that was happening verse number 20 therefore if you be dead in christ from the rudiments of this world why as though living in this world are ye subject to ordinances he says this why are you subject to rules that have nothing to do with the gospel if you're dead in christ whether it's the jewish law whether it's human tradition whether it's ordinance of men this is not helping you he's saying it's hurting you. And here's the danger for me. 
and the danger maybe for you, because I really want to please Jesus, and I really want to do what is, well, what is right, and I really want to be a good Christian. Sometimes I'm not a good Christian, and I wish I was a better Christian. Sometimes I, sometimes I struggle with sin, and I wish I didn't struggle with sin, and I wonder, what, to, what can be done? And if I'm not careful, my flesh can lead me in the wrong direction. I've got news for you. Your flesh is gratified through license and legalism. And yes, a Christian can be a legalist. Legalism isn't just adding works to salvation. It is also trying to find merit with God, whether you're saved and unsaved, through your effort. That's legalism. And the problem is it appeals to people that are real serious-minded and have discipline and they want to do the right things. And most of you in Bible college are like that. And the problem is we can become reliant spiritually on things that are fleshly motivated and it's not pleasing to God. And that's exactly what Scripture is talking about here. As soon as I find my right passage again. In verse number 20, if you're dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to the ordinances? Okay, get specific, Paul. We don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? What are ordinances of man? Here it is, verse number 21. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Don't touch this thing. Don't taste this thing. Don't handle this thing. This is just the start. How many of you get the idea? You could make this list go on and on and on and on and on. Hey, it's easy to make lists, isn't it? You want to be right with God? Here's the list. Boom. And I'll be honest with you. I, I want to walk with God. I want to please God. I want God to be pleased with my life. But some days I think because I've read my Bible, I'm right with God. Now I need to read my Bible. But you know what? There have, been, there have been thousands of years where most Christians were illiterate and didn't have access to the Bible, and they could still walk with God. You realize that, right? I'm not saying skip, skip your Bible reading. I'm saying, I, I'm absolutely, Dr. R, you know, I know you emphasize this. You helped me in my life. It has been, before God, I can't remember in decades that I've, I've, I've missed the time of reading my Bible. But here's the problem. Just saying that can make me feel good about myself, and that's dangerous. That's, what, that's the point. Just saying that can make me feel like I'm probably better than you if you didn't read your Bible this morning, because I did. And that's dangerous. And I'll be honest, there's some things that have troubled me as a 37-year-old. I'm still growing. I'm still a disciple. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm, I, I, I read God's Word, and I pray, and, and I see stuff that doesn't make sense to me. And I see stuff, and I'm not going to get too specific. I was thinking this morning of different illustrations, and I didn't want to get too specific because I didn't want one person uh, specifically to come to mind. What I realized was there's just too many illustrations if, if you know the stories. I'm here to tell you there have been a lot of Christian leaders that end up weren't living the lifestyle that we thought they were living. There have been people that are very, we use terms like this, high standards. And yet it turns out they had a very sinful lifestyle. I have nothing against high standards, but I want you to hear what the Bible says. That doesn't protect you against sin. Because sin is not what happens on the outside and goes inside. Sin is what starts on the inside and comes out. It's a hard issue. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. You get to this thing where touch not, handle not, taste not. And it can be spiritually deceptive. <clears throat> I wonder if you're the kind of person... If you've wondered before, how can somebody have high dress standards but commit immorality? How can, why does somebody that has a strong view of presentation not correctly exegete the text? Why does somebody avoid movie theaters but watch filth on their phone? How can somebody consistently go soul winning and track, pass out tracks but make racist jokes that demean somebody made in God's image? How about somebody who always wears a white shirt and a tie in a pulpit but they live in fear of man? How about somebody who reads their Bible every day but can't remember the last time it changed how they acted or thought? How about somebody who doesn't celebrate Halloween because it's the devil's holiday but you're proud about your own spirituality? 
How about somebody who goes to church three times a week, but you're just as likely as an unsaved person to gossip and to say untruths? How about somebody who prays every meal, but you're never grateful? How about somebody who you're seen at Walmart, people can guess you're a Christian because of your dress, but nobody would ever know you're a Christian because of how you love the brethren. By the way, that's what Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, that ye love one another. What I'm saying here is I'm not, I'm not advocating for Halloween and movie theaters and, and, and music or that, that's off, whatever. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is don't deceive yourself because watch this. Here's where this passage ends. It's so powerful. I read this, this a couple weeks ago and I, I just like, God, I'm sorry. This is me. Look at what it says here as this passage concludes. So he talks about touch not, handle not, taste not. These things perish with the using after the commandments and the doctrines of men. Verse number 23. If you get it, it'll change something. It says, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship. Let's stop. Doesn't that look spiritual? You see somebody, you're like, yeah, you know, you've got these dress standards, but our dress standards are this, you know. Uh, you wear skirts, but our skirts go to here. You don't watch those movies, but we don't watch any movies. It, you, don't, you, know, you don't listen to that music. We don't listen to this music, right? It becomes this game of one-upmanship. Like you're competing back and forth to see who can make the most ordinances of men. And it ends up building spiritual pride, which isn't spiritual, which is dangerous. In the passage concludes here in verse number three, these things have a show of will worship and humility and the neglecting of the body. But you got to work on this last phrase here. I'm going to help you with it. Not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Okay, that word honor had a broader term 400 years ago than it does today. But you do some word study on it in Greek, in English, or especially in Greek, and you'll find that the idea is uh, honor as in value or worth or weight. It's translated price in other places in the New Testament. Here's what this is saying. These things have no effect on your flesh. These touch not, taste not, handle not, ordinances of man are powerless to control your flesh. That's important. Because you and I should both be concerned about controlling our flesh. And not letting our flesh ruin our life because it can in a hurry. How many of you recognize that? Here's what you need to hear from the Bible this morning. Touch not, taste not, handle not, ordinances of men are powerless to bring your flesh into alignment with the character of Christ. No, no honor, no effect, no weight, no, uh, no result in the area of satisfying the flesh. You cannot substitute legalism for Christ and expect to have a better walk with God. You cannot, just like you can't make a circle more round, you can't make a perfect sphere more smooth, you cannot add to the gospel without inadvertently subtracting from it. You can't, any attempt to increase the message of the gospel will always diminish it. Whenever you try to, here's how Romans chapter 11 says, if it is faith or if it is works, it is no more faith. They're mutually exclusive. You add in the works, you add in self-reliance, you add in some pride, you add in some human ordinances and some uh, traditions of man, and you, you've done, you've neutralized grace. And you don't need to do that. Don't do that. Paul is pleading with this church who they were saved, they had the gospel, and then they were, they were being drawn in this other direction of adding some stuff to the gospel of, yeah, you're saved, but in addition to being saved, maybe you ought to consider being circumcised. Maybe you ought to consider keeping this new moon. Maybe you ought to consider keeping the Sabbath. It's in the Bible. Maybe you ought to, since you're saved, maybe you ought to not touch that or handle that or taste that. Just don't eat it. Uh, the meat and the drink. If, you're, if you love Jesus, you'll do all of this in addition to being saved and having a right heart. 
The Apostle Paul says, that's powerless against the flesh. If you've wondered like me, I'll never remember hearing a message. I heard one message from a very prominent person. I won't try to be too specific. A lot of you will know who I'm talking about. I heard one message from this guy. He led a college. He had a significant ministry. He was known to be, this whole ministry and part of the movement was known to be really high standards and really conservative and really uh, uh, vigorous in their outreach. And, and I heard one message, one message only. And, and, and God knows my heart, I'm not trying to put myself in a judge of another person, but I walked away a little bit confused. And I wasn't sure what to do with it because in this message, he talked about getting up early, early in the morning and having hours of prayer for America and wearing sackcloth while he prayed and fasted. And today he's in jail for sexual assault of a minor. I've got news for you. You can get up before anybody in your dorm. You can pray longer than anybody on campus. You can wear sackcloth while you pray. And if you're proud about it, or if you're trying to add something to Christ, it's not only unhelpful, it's dangerous. Say, man, what's the answer? Because I want to be a good Christian too. I want God to please, be pleased with me as well. I want to be excellent in my life, in my ministry, in my servant service to God. I want to be a five-star Christian. But apparently all these extra things that I add on, this legalistic approach to finding favor with God, apparently that's unhelpful and maybe even dangerous. So what do I have left? And the answer is, you have Jesus. And you are called to holiness. Be holy as your Father which is in heaven is holy. Be perfect even as he is imperfect. You are called to shun the the works of the flesh and the works of the the temptations of the world, immorality and all these things. Yes, you're called to shun those. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul writes, the things that are unsavory, the things that are the innuendos, the the things that might be sexual or taken wrong, the the things that are dark, don't even let them once be named among you. This is not a call to abandon holiness. You can't be too holy for God. But not every standard is a attempt at holiness what we need to recognize what paul is warning this this group of christians is christ is enough so i wonder who do you want to be impressed with your spirituality i wonder this morning what do you do to impress others of your spirituality Or on a heart level, what do you do because it makes you feel like you're a loved, cherished, accepted child of God when you do it? What do you fail to do and feel unworthy? What if you don't do? Do you feel awkward praying after? Can I remind you this morning? Christ is enough. 